Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and 9.30 AM. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but a photographer of over 30 years. If a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say, I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as the program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishers. Each week, we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's essay is My Cup of Thankfulness by Lori Wick, who is a multifaceted author of Christian fiction. As comfortable writing period stories as she is penning contemporary works, Lori's books, more than six million in print, vary widely in location and time period. Lori's faithful fans consistently put her series and standalone works on their bestseller list. Lori and her husband Bob live with their swiftly growing family in the Midwest. With that, let's begin the essay, My Cup of Thankfulness, by Lori Wick. I tend to be a comparative shopper when it comes to thankfulness. I do this without a lot of thought. It comes naturally. I might be sitting in the airport thinking how much my feet hurt, and then a man who only has one leg moves past me. Suddenly, I'm thankful that I have feet at all. Or I might read in the news about a child who shot his mother. And just the night before, I remember that one of my children gave me a hard time about doing the dishes. I rationalize that at least my child is not shooting people. See how much worse it could be? Doesn't that give me much to be thankful for? Or maybe I'm thinking about my tongue. One of the things I struggle with since I don't always stay quiet when I should. I meet a new man at church and he tells me about his years of drug and alcohol abuse and how he still struggles with temptation in those areas. As I listen, I comfort, or rather delude myself, into thinking that my sin problems could be much worse. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that I can't be thankful for the two feet God is giving me or for children who have chosen not to be violent, or even the struggles God has chosen for me, knowing they are just what he has in mind. But I'm basing my thanks on some pretty shaky ground. Enter the cross. Enter the gift of eternal life, because I believe in the Savior who died on that cross. I never have to waste my time comparative shopping for thankfulness again. If I keep the cross at the forefront of my mind, I will constantly remember that I have something to be thankful 
always something with which to be thankful. I have eternal life. My feet hurt today. I have eternal life. My children don't always obey me. I have eternal life. I forgot once again to control my tongue. I have eternal life. Having eternal life because of Christ's work on the cross doesn't mean that I ignore my children's wrong behavior or make excuses for my runaway tongue, but it does mean that there's a larger picture. The cross means that I don't have to ache any longer. The cross means my joy can be complete. The cross means that confession and full fellowship is just a prayer away. The cross means that my cup of thankfulness can overflow 100% of the time, even amid upsetting news reports, weary feet, and a sinful tongue. I can't honestly tell you that I am thankful all the time, but I can assure you that because of the cross, I have no excuse not to be. God's Son, sinless and perfect Jesus Christ, took my sin and died for it. I know that I deserve a death far worse, but he paid my debt. Even as I write this, I'm smiling because of what the cross means to me. It means I have eternal life. That concludes the essay, My Cup of Thankfulness by Laurie Wick. There is a poem following this essay, which is by A.W. Tozer, which says, The cross of Christ is the most revolutionary thing ever to happen among men. Again, by A.W. Tozer. Now, the photo accompanying the essay is called The Plan. This cross image is quite unique for several reasons, all of which are out of my control, except that I chose to go up to that majestic ridge that night. And as such, the first aspect to comment on was that the image was shot well after sunset, and there is still just enough light for some color in the sky, but the image definitely imparts the feeling that it is already night. The second aspect is that there is a bright star in the upper left-hand side of the photo. The luminosity is that of a little brighter than a normal star, but because there is still color in the sky, one gets the sense that this is the first star of the night. The third aspect is that there is a light streak, albeit ever faint, but it's still there. And it runs from the lower right-hand side of the star and runs diagonally towards the center of the cross. Simply amazing and simply not me. It is as if the star pointed directly at the cross. Now, before you accuse me of photoshopping this, allow me to remind everyone that the collection was shot between 1998 and 2000, meaning the entire body of work of the cross collection was shot with 35 millimeter film, meaning I can show you that light streak on the negative. It might have been a series of dust bits that just so happened to line up in a certain way, or a smudge on the lens, either on the front side or interior, but the odds of this very happy accident happening by accident is extreme. Now this illusion lends itself to the name, the plan, in that the star can be interpreted as the star of Bethlehem, announcing the birth of Jesus, who was the Messiah, born to die on the cross and to be raised out of the tomb. The tomb. That leads me to my fourth and final aspect. The cross in this image is sitting atop a hill of rocks, a mix of rocks and earth, but the dirt is fashioned in such a way that it has a meandering leading or a natural 
or accidental path from where I'm standing winding up to the cross. And if that's not enough, in one section of the lower image is the illusion of an open tomb. It happens ha, has to do with it being so dark and the mix of light and shadows creating what looks a lot like an open cave amongst the pile of dirt. Simply amazing. In, one, in my humble opinion, it is one of the most divinely appointed image in the cross collection, even more than my lightning shots. Why do I say this? Because it contains all three major aspects of Jesus Christ. The Star of Bethlehem, proclaiming his birth, the cross of the crucifixion, and the empty tomb of his resurrection. It illustrates the entire message of the gospel in one image. And as I said, this image, probably more than any other in the cross collection, illustrates the plan of God for all of humankind across all of human history. That he was sending his son to be born, minister, die, and be resurrected for all of us. It also implies that no matter what changes and challenges we face in our life, our family or our church or in society, the story, the purpose and impact of the cross stays the same. Meanwhile, while everything around our lives are in flux, constantly changing, the cross never changes. The principles, precepts, and promise of the cross never move. And it will not be moved even while the plates, the tectonic plates beneath our temporal life keep shifting. Be encouraged. The bedrock of Golgotha is solid, steadfast, and sure. When the events in your life begin to shake your footing, your foundation, and even your faith, then return to the cross today. It makes me think if history as we know it from the Garden of Eden was always leading to the cross to save the entirety of humankind, then what about us individual Christians? What is the plan for each of our lives? I mean, each of us have a different destiny in God and for the kingdom of heaven based on our innate abilities and the environment of our upbringing, like the family that we grew up in. But what might be the common plan, the common denominator plan for all of us? Well, the foundation of all believers is Jesus Christ. As we mature in our faith, we become more and more like Jesus, sharing his characteristics, the traits, the common denominator that makes us alike. Are all those attributes that we have obtained by virtue of the fact that we are all in his family and being conformed to his image? Each person must come to faith in Jesus on their own terms as an individual. Once a believer, however, he is then part of a whole, a part of a body of Christ. The Bible refers to this whole in many ways. Galatians 3.26 and 28 say, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave or free, there is neither male or female, for you all you are all one in Christ. The Bible calls us followers of the Son of God as a family, as in children of God. He refers to us as brothers, he refers to us as a flock, he refers to us as God's elect, the church, and the body of Christ. It refers to us as a building or a temple and also as the bride of Christ. Our commonality is based in him. There are some common traits among true believers everywhere. One is love for others. Remembering the breath of God is in everyone 
we meet, and that God loves them, and would none would perish. And if we love them, then we would do and say things that would help lead them to or stay with God. Another is compassion, Galatians 6.10. I've observed incredible sacrificial love on the parts of Christians throughout the world. Some I've witnessed personally, some in movies like St. Dr. Moscato, or about a movie I watched about Mother Teresa. And others are books, books that I've read that talk about autobiographies of missionaries and saints. The common denominator I see is compassion, compassion for their fellow man. Then we have joy in the Lord. True joy in the Lord transcends any economy, society, family, or any situation in life. My mom constantly, while I was being raised, worked two jobs, but she never went on welfare. No matter how tough things were for us, she always had a radiant joy. And then there's sense of family. No matter where I worship, I feel at home. I know that I'm with family. The sense of belonging is immediate. And to me, it does not matter whether it's Eastern Orthodox Church, Catholic, Christian, Protestant. We are all brothers and sisters. We're all part of one family. Then there's sacrificial spirit. Many of us, brothers and sisters, truly endure hardships, which take many forms. Persecution, deprivation, misunderstanding, physical ailments, family trials, and many more. The common thread of sacrificial love amongst believers is understood in the context of God's plan to use those for His glory, with us always being others-oriented, teachable, There is a constant delight in encountering believers who are eager to learn more about Christ, more about the kingdom, and to apply what they have learned. An exercise of spiritual gifts. The common denominator of all of us is Christ, but he has equipped each of us with unique qualities and gifts that we can use to serve him and the kingdom. Then there's desire to please and glorify God. With the Holy Spirit as our solid foundation, Believers work at removing their sin in their lives so that their lives will glorify Him. Collectively, as one in Christ, we are the answer to His prayer in John 17. When we obey His command to love Him and others, it helps the world to see Jesus in us. Prayer, a spiritual connection between God and man, a two-way communication in which we are not only talking with God, but listening as well. As John Michael put it, prayer is the flower of gentleness, freedom from anger within. Prayer is the fruit of joy and thankfulness, the remedy for despair and sin. Prayer is the highest intention, the ascent of the souls into God, the passion's full affection, the deliverance of demons all. Prayer is the state of dispassion, detached from anger and desire, which by virtue and pure loving, transports the soul to God. Renounce all to gain everything. You will then be free of all things. And then finally, the birthing of souls. I kind of touched on that a bit when I referenced John 17. We have a great commission to fulfill, and that is to bring new believers into the kingdom of heaven. Now with that in mind, let's return to Lori Wick's essay. The title of the essay is My Cup Running Over, a reference from Psalms 23. And the theme that I got out of the essay was the important aspect of gratitude and an appreciative attitude to and in life. 
Lori admits that she's a comparative shopper of thankfulness, and she gives several examples. I can appreciate where she's coming from. The only problem for me is that I'm not wired that way. I've never felt sorry for myself to get to a comparative phrase. I mean, in general, I don't ever recall feeling sorry for myself for anything. Not for being born to a heroin addict or being beaten by my mom's drug-dealing boyfriend, nor for having a pathetically alcoholic father, or say when I lost loved ones, like my wife who died of cancer. And some may say, sure, you're just good at compartmentalizing. And maybe they are right. But I never noticed myself comparing my situation to anyone else. It may sound weird, but honestly, I simply see my days every day and most of the moments of each day as a gift from God. I know that sounds like a bumper sticker, but the way I look at my life is that this is my day, a unique day, a day that only I can live. I am in a certain time zone, certain longitude and latitude. I live in a specific city in a certain street raised by particular parents. I grew up with certain extended families and I keep in contact with them, meaning even though I share a certain calendar day with the rest of humanity, only I can live this day the way I can. And not just because of all the reasons I mentioned, but all of those that I just mentioned are affected by the choices along the way, choices in every moment, and they make up my day. And it makes it more even unique and more exclusive to me. Now, each day will be full of positives and negatives, ups and downs, happiness and sadness. I've touched on this aspect of life in previous episodes, how everything that makes us us and everything we see, hear, feel, and taste is at the atomic and subatomic levels made up of positive and negatives. So while Lori Wick calls herself a comparative shopper, I kind of see myself as a relative shopper, as in everything is relative. And in that perspective, I have choices of how to react to each moment of every day. For me, I set intentions that I can take advantage of positive opportunities in my day and learn from negative situations. And for those who can hear what I'm saying, good can come out of any part of bad, meaning at any point of any sine wave charged by both positive and negative polarity. But to be fair, there are moments of my life where I can recall a comparativeness, times that were so profound I could not help but remember it, One that comes to mind is when I meet someone in the middle or on the back end of a nasty divorce. I quickly realized back when I was a young widower how some of these people were in much more pain than I was growing through, especially those who were betrayed by unfaithfulness or abused or when kids are involved. I had a friend back then who was wounded so deeply by his wife cheating on him and him losing everything in life, you know, the house, the visitation of the kids. He lost everything and he was all tied up in knots. What if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? Or if I treated her this way, if I treated her better that way or something or anything. And he was all wound up. And similar to what Lori Wick was saying, I recall the actual words in my head talking to myself saying, wow, my divorce friend needs much more sympathy and empathy really than somebody widowed like myself. And when you lose a loved one, especially quickly, there is no second guessing if it was something that you were powerless to stop. And from my situation, I had no kids, so I was able to move on much, much faster and much faster than divorced people. And with those divorces where kids are involved, one is really, truly never able 
to move on. But instead of comparing or feeling sorry, I sometimes get a dose of that from others. Meaning early on, I, I remember receiving sympathy from people and even empathy, uh, most times unsolicited. And I would say thanks and look for a way out of the conversation. <laughs> it always make me feel a little awkward. I appreciate it, but it'd make me feel awkward. So I simply now live in a way that I strive to live through whatever I have to and learn from everything I have during various moments of my day. I try to get as much done as possible on a given day. I do have multiple to-do lists, and there's never not something to do. But instead of getting frustrated or discouraged when a day flies by without much getting done, I simply give it to God, asking Him to open the doors that were locked and to accomplish what I feel His will is in His time. I just, with God's help, get as much done as I can with the time I have each day. This perspective helps me stay led and not driven, and not giving up when things look like all is lost. I call this the Candyland effect. Do you remember that game? I remember I had friends who wanted to quit when it looked like they would lose. My cousin was famous for that. But in life, when I have a friend stressing out about a very bad-looking situation, I like to say, why are you worrying about what has not happened yet? You don't know the end of the story yet. You never know how it will actually end up. Like in Candyland, you may be way back in the trail, and it looks like your opponent needs just one more card or one more turn to win, and they pick a peanut or a gumdrop card, and you find yourself in the lead. It can happen, and thus there is always hope. I had a business owner this week sharing with me how bad his numbers are at the moment, how he's bleeding money, and without a quick turnaround, he will close the doors, and was making comments that made me feel that that's kind of what he wanted. I said, If you are hemorrhaging, then get a tourniquet on the wound, give your business into the hands of God, and then get to work and trust him for the turnaround. And getting back to the analogy of the game, even if you don't win the game or the situation in life does not turn out like you wanted, remember, God is still in control and prayer changes things. If you honor God with your life and if God wills your business to turn around, for example, it will. He made the vast expanse of the ever-expanding universe. All the trillions and trillions of stars and planets around those stars, let alone this little speck of dust we live on. So what is so hard about having faith that God can bring in new clients, possibly at a much higher rate, right away? I contend God can and God will if it is his will. Now some stress about the events of our day-to-day, but why? I had a friend recently so anxious about a job interview. I said, why? Why not be yourself? If this job is willed by God for you, then you could bomb the interview and still get hired. And if it's not, then you could ace the interview and not get hired. The proper perspective is that you do not want to work a job if God does not want you there. And yes, I understand things can happen all the time. It could be small or insignificant or significant. It could be a cell, a, your, the screen on your cell phone crack, or a flat tire, or a water pipe bursting a flood into your house, a speeding ticket, being laid off, or a friend receiving a bad health prognosis. When I find myself in a challenge, I strive to keep my mind stayed on Christ versus worrying about potential implications. Don't misunderstand, I'm not perfect. But overall, I lean on what I've learned through what I grew up through. For example, if I can't find my keys, I will not allow myself to begin to worry about a bunch of worst-case possibilities, none of which has happened yet. I do what I observed my mom always doing when I was being raised, which is to go into purposeful prayers. 
asking God to help you through prayer, and then to think. Think and pray. Pray and think. Again, not think of a worst-case scenario, but milling over solutions and new approaches to the situation, and ultimately trusting in the providence of God's hand in our life. Who knows? Maybe the delay in leaving the house at that moment prevented me from being hit by a red light runner. Maybe if I have to take my car to the tire shop, I get to share the gospel with the worker. No matter how bad the situation, I like to meditate on what I can learn from the situation and how, in hindsight, I managed that situation so I can at least learn from it. I like to ask myself if I really did depend on God in that situation. Did I try to control things or did I give it all to God? I found that when I give up control, trusting in and seeking God's grace, that that is when my cup overflows. The psalmist declared, the Lord provided so much abundance that his cup overflowed. What did David mean by this? In context of the psalm he was writing, he talked about God providing sustenance, even while being chased by his enemies. But is that all this verse is about? The entire psalm is a metaphor of how our Lord, the Good Shepherd, cares for his sheep. It shows not only his willingness, but also his ability to care for us by providing food and water in abundance and protection in times of danger. It also makes it clear that he provides both our physical and spiritual needs. With regard to a cup that runs over, several places in the New Testament talk about Jesus himself being our food and drink. It talks about how we are to gain eternal life by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And those who do will have rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit, flowing from them water that they can actually share with others. Let us look at a Jesus example. Remember the story of him and the Samaritan woman at the well? Jesus started talking to her about him, giving water that shall be a well, springing up into eternal life. What is of note to me is Jesus was always sharing his spiritual cup with others. Look at all the healings he did, the forgiveness of sins, the miracles, the blessings, and the gifts he gave to those who sought him. Jesus was always pouring out of his cup into the cup of others. Well, those that were open to it or were seeking it. It occurs to me, as his disciples, we should be doing the same. Jesus had a cup that he shared with those around him during his life and ministry. However, he also had a very specific cup that was given just to him by the Father that only he would have to drink. It was a cup that he did not have to drink of. It was his choice. During the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleaded with the Father to take that cup from him, and yet he surrendered his will to his Father's will. And in so doing, he gave to us the gifts of salvation and eternal life. Jesus poured out his overflowing cup onto us when he gave his blood and sacrifice for us. We must drink of that cup as he drank of his daily. Today, we have been given a wonderful gift in receiving the Holy Spirit from the Father. Look at the tremendous blessings we have been given, most of all an understanding of his plan for mankind and his truth, his way of life, living, doing, acting, and being. Is it not a blessing for us to know these things? How much are we sharing that with others every day? What example are we setting by being lights to the world, by letting that living water bubble up and out of us on a daily basis? Are we drawing from his well daily, then pouring it into the cup of others as we interact with them just as Jesus did? 
Like the psalmist, does our cup overflow with thanksgiving, joy, and deep appreciation to our Father and to Jesus so that others can see that clearly in us? In these dark and uncertain times when people are so desperately in need of hope, as we go about our day, let us do as Jesus did. When our cup runs over, fill someone else's cup. It simply is our duty. No, our joy as we fulfill the Great Commission in the everyday moments of our everydays. Might I encourage you to start living in this soul-hydrating process and perspective today. And if you have not drank of this soul-quenching living water, if you are not born again yet, then I suggest you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, heal you of your pain, and soak in the spiritually cleansing water that energizes the atomic parts of your soul to eternal life. Ask Jesus to come into your heart today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this week's essay, The Plan, along with my other perspirations, then check out Magic Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise, through the Magi Cross products, hear other cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M A J I C R O S S.com.